So one of the interesting things that's been happening recently is that um, Australia has taken the ashes back from England. I know this is a, a very sad thing for the English. Um, and if there's a complete whitewash, uh, then it'll be even sadder. But, of course, we hope that's not going to happen. Those of you that don't understand cricket uh, should read uh, Bill Bryson's Down Under. And um, <laughs> I'm not sure you'll be any wiser about the game of cricket, but you know, that's a good read. So anyway, one has a lot of mudita for the Australians that they've uh, won the Ashes back again. They would like they would like to just get a clean sweep and um, win all the Test matches. And probably anybody who's vaguely interested in the game knows that Shane Warne is going to resign, as is Glenn McGrath. They're all both going to resign at the end of this Test series, and that's the end of an era, really. Um, and don't ask me who Shane Warne is. Somebody did this morning. Uh, Shane Warne is going to be the first man. He's one wicket away from getting 700 wickets in the test matches. This is, this is undone in human history. This is a first, and uh, it's probably going to happen very soon. So, um, And he's playing in his hometown in Melbourne on Boxing Day. 100,000 people are going to be there to watch. So it's quite an event. This is... So this is um, a big thing that's happening right now, and I know there's lots of other big things that's happening on the planet, but <laughs> this is one of the big things that's happening, and one can have a lot of mudita for the Australians. They must be very happy about it. They were very unhappy when they lost the Ashes. But the other thing also with the Australians, I, I've noticed, I don't know if anybody else has been aware of this, but you also have a lot of compassion for them because um, they've run out of water. Uh, and this is very sad. This is very serious. This is, uh, this is the worst drought in, um, well, certainly living memory, and perhaps ever, um, according to some people. And it hasn't rained for five years in, in large areas of Australia. And there are very serious social consequences. So uh, we might have lost the ashes, but it still rains in, in England and probably going to keep raining. But the situation in Australia is, is a kind of, it's a, there's an important lesson there really with this because if you watch what's being said or what's going on there, people are talking about it as if there's something going wrong. And I always find this very interesting. Like one has a lot of compassion for the farmers who are suffering seriously as a result of it, but this drought. But the idea that somehow something's going wrong, like they feel like somebody's played a dirty trick on them, or, you know, nature has gone wrong or something. You know, there used to be, the coastal plains of Australia used to all be covered in forest. And it used to rain quite regularly there. And and the other thing is that, you know, well, of course, they cut all the forests down so that they could um, graze beef. And, you know, actually, the Australians export water. 
Now, they, they probably a lot of Australians don't realise this, but they export water in the form of beef. It takes a lot of water to grow cows. It takes a lot less water to grow soybeans. And uh, so, anyway, what's going on there is, is, is uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very serious, very serious situation in Australia. Uh, the shortage of water, and not just because the cricket pitches are all drying up and turning into dust, but um, there's a lot of people suffering badly. But I think to to uh, to pay attention to how we react to these situations uh, is important. You know, to, just to say, oh, oh, it shouldn't be this way, or to 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 feel, to let ourselves indulge in feelings that something's going wrong um, is not enough. I mean, it's the same in New Zealand. They have what they call a problem with erosion. The uh, all the soil, the topsoil, and all the on the hills is being washed off and going into the seas, and it's causing all sorts of problems. But uh, it wasn't that long ago that all these hills in New Zealand were covered in uh, Kauri trees, beautiful, beautiful um, redwoods. They are actually huge, big trees that they used to take forever to grow. They're not quick-growing redwoods. They were very took a long time to grow, and they're massive, beautiful, straight trees with no branches low down. They were just phenomenally beautiful trees. And then when the uh, the Brits mostly went out there and uh, saw these lovely trees, and uh, what they used to do was they would find where a river would go through a, a ravine, you know, through a gorge, and they'd build a big dam. They'd build a huge big dam across this. And then the water would back up, and they'd strip fell all the trees, all the kauri trees, and just just thousands, millions of trees, just cut them all down, and then let them float in this big lake that they created. And then what they would do is they would smash the dam, and then all these trees would just down the gorge, and about 20% of them would make it out to the ocean, and then they would put them on a boat and take them away. The other whatever percent, I don't know exactly what it was, but the other 80% just turned into splinter wood. Now, that's the cause of the erosion in uh, New Zealand. That and the rabbits, of course, and the rabbits came, and and uh, pretty little bunnies that they are, cute little things. But uh, really, it's not... The problem with uh, the rain is not the problem with the erosion. The problem is with what? The problem is with unawareness. That we get very easily fooled by the way things appear to be. We know settlers out in Australia, New Zealand, you know, they see all this timber. Well, we could just cut all these lovely carry trees down and make a load of money and all the Australians, you know, we could have all these beautiful fields growing grass and growing cows and eating lots of, of meat and uh, how lovely that would be. Not seeing, not seeing the bigger picture. And so this is, this is uh, evident on that, the uh, external mundane level, you know, where we, well, mundane, I mean mundane, I don't mean insignificant, I mean the, in the, the material world level. We can see how unfortunate it is to lack uh, perspective on these things. Or like going to war, likewise. It's just, you know, the only language these people understand is aggression. So, and now aggression can, aggression can feel when there's aggression flowing, you've got aggressive energy going, 
it can feel very convincing. The apparent nature of ill will is that if we follow it, then we're going to achieve something useful. Even John Howard now, even John Howard, that that Australian chappie, he um, who won't didn't sign Kyoto and won't sign Kyoto, but now he's coming out and he's saying that he wants to lead the drive in the area of greenhouse gas emissions in the most aggressive way possible, and uh, you know that aggressive leadership is going to deal with the problem, and. Well, I think actually Michael, John Howard, not Michael Howard, John Howard has actually turned into a sort of a Buddhist, a sort of a Buddhist, because, because now he's reflecting on suffering. You see, before he wasn't suffering, he was just out, you know, shooting pigs and whatever else he used to, <laughs> he used to do in his spare time. But now he's suffering because he can't take a shower in Australia. Like you can't take a shower anymore for more than a few seconds. And so instead of just blaming the economy or blaming the world or blaming something for for the problems, for your suffering, he's actually now reflecting on suffering. And now he says there's a cause for suffering. And they, the, the suffering, the shortage of water, and there's a cause for it. And he actually says, yeah, there's a, there's a problem with these greenhouse gases. And that's very good. So he is a kind of a Buddhist. You know, there's suffering and he's paying attention to it and he says there's a cause for suffering. However, uh, the next step is very important because... To react with just an initial reaction, you can think that you know more aggression is going to deal with it. Uh, aggressive leadership is what is called for. When really, I think what's called for, and certainly from a spiritual perspective, what is called for is a deeper inquiry. There are superficial causes for our problems, for suffering and so on. But there are also deeper causes. And so long as we're only dealing with the superficial causes, like the the short-term solutions to things, then it never really resolves anything. And so, like lots of these environmental problems, it's because there's just been short-termism. You know, people haven't really seen the bigger picture, haven't been aware, so it's not to blame the pioneers in New Zealand or the farmers in Australia is not to blame anybody, but it is to identify unawareness as the primary cause and to see how unawareness functions. See, when we don't, we don't see how dangerous it is to live with unawareness, well then of course we just uh, follow it. Like, um, you know, ill will, aggression, aversion, can it be very convincing? You just think, if I just follow this and just destroy the obstruction or get rid of what's getting away, or delusion, uh, delusion, uh, also a delusion can appear very, when delusion takes over, it can feel very good. You know, it's like, like, you know, like you make a determination to get up in the morning to meditate. And you've had plenty of sleep, you wake up, but then there's this deluded mind state that just comes over you and says, oh, just another few minutes. Ooh. <laughs> this a little, it's going to pull the duvet up, and, and then of course it's another half an hour, and then it's too late to meditate. Delusion often feels good. Delusion often feels very good. 
Like we were talking the other day about denial, and you know, denial can feel good. It's like it feels better not to face the problem sometimes, you know, to pretend it's not even there, or uh, uh, chemically induced, chemically induced delusion. Yeah. Alcohol, this time of year, so the uh, alcohol companies are seeing their profits going up. This is the time to get drunk and get merry. But somebody was telling me just yesterday that, or maybe this morning, I think, when they look back at their lives, this is a, a friend who's about 60 years old and looks back at his life and, you know, had a few few difficulties. And, but he says, oh, in almost every single case where there's been a mistake made or gotten into trouble, it's been alcohol. And the statistics are very clear. I mean, it's just so clear. If you look at what goes on, road accidents, murder, rape, all these theft, a lot of these things, you know, there's alcohol involved. And and yet something within us doesn't really want to, well, I can't say us, obviously it doesn't apply to us as monks, but you know, generally in general society, there's an unwillingness to really take on board that, that this is, a, this is a, a kind of chemical form of, this is delusion. And even if it feels good, it doesn't mean to say that it is good. And uh, there's, um, I, I think I mentioned a, a few weeks ago this. Now they're using technology to deal with the problem because you, you can. A lot of people are making these telephone calls when they're drunk on their mobile phones. They're out partying and and then they get their mobile phone out and they make a very silly phone call that in the morning they realise they shouldn't have done it. They got in a lot of trouble and so now. One of the phone companies has um, invented this thing where you blow into your phone and and then you read what it says and it can tell. You say, you are too drunk to make this call. <laughs> you should not use make this call. And that, so that's helpful use of technology. Or in America now, there's uh, I, think it's in, I think it's Kentucky where they have the highest rate of drunk drivers. Sorry to Kentucky if that's the wrong state, but I think it's Kentucky. They have this mechanism now called interlock that if you, uh, if you get caught drunk driving, you have to have this interlock machine on your car. You can't turn this, you can't get the car started without taking this gadget and blowing into it. And if you're drunk, it, the car just won't start. So, you know, there's, there's a useful place for technology. However, you know, you can also get, <laughs> you can also get overly dependent on technology. Technology can even make you stupid. I read this case recently about uh, this German guy. I think he was about my age, just 50 years old or something rather. And you know what, you know, he, 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 everybody these days, well not everybody, but a lot of people have a sat nav in their car, satellite navigation gadget. And, and so uh, you're depending upon technology to keep you safe. And so the, the sat nav says, turn right here. So he turns right here and boom, plows into a public toilet. Fortunately, there's nobody sitting on it. <laughs> As far as I know. But actually, he was supposed to wait another 30 metres. Um, you know, I mean, the, the sat-nav was saying, turn right here, and the signpost 30 metres away was saying, turn right. But he was just basically doing what he was told, and so he turned right there. And, and I don't know whether the thing was Germans, because there was another one, and a guy who, this was some time ago, he, he um, was a, driving along, the sat-nav said, follow this road. There's a great big, huge sign, I think a number of signs, saying roadworks don't enter, roadworks don't enter, roadworks don't enter. But the sat-nav says, go this way, go this way, go. So he follows the sat-nav, and, and boom, 
into a huge big pile of sand at an 80 miles an hour, 100 miles an hour, and totally wrote off his lovely BMW. <laughs> so anyway, technology cannot save us uh, from our delusions. It uh, maybe can help us a little bit. But the uh, the real solution, of course, whether it's whether it's aversion or delusion or greed, um, our task as human beings is to is to what is to recognize the functioning of unawareness, to see when there is unawareness there, and to do what we can do about it. You know, because these things are so convincing: greed, aversion, delusion. You know, psychologically, chemically, you want to look at the chemistry of these things. You can tell, like, you know, smoking marijuana is a form of chemically induced delusion. You can smoke marijuana, and was it THC? I think is the chemical that that, that does the business in marijuana. And uh, these days, they're kind of pumping the stuff into you. And like we we used to smoke something that had two or three percent. THC in it these days, you can get up to 50 or even 80% THC in it. And, and you're smoking this stuff and you're having a good time and, you know, getting all giggly and, and relaxed and so on. And you think it's all wonderful. But, but the reality is that, uh, you know, you look at what's really going on is that, uh, this chemical is seriously interfering with your brain. You know, what, what the, the medical people have identified, the part of your brain is called the hippocampus, which is, Actually, nothing to do with an effeminate hippopotamus. Which is <laughs> so apparently, uh, it's something to do with a Greek word about horses or something. But anyway, it's, uh, it's part of the brain, where, which is to do with uh, integrating your, your uh, sensory information and your spatial information. And it's a very, very important part of... Uh, the, memory function in the brain. And this chemical is very directly uh, suppressing this part of the brain, very clearly, very directly suppressing this part of the brain, and you are becoming more and more deluded. Whereas on the apparent level, you're just chilled. You know, you've got the Grateful Dead blaring, and you're sitting on a beanbag, and and uh, you think it's wonderful. That's the apparent reality. Apparently, it's wonderful, but in actuality, it's really bad news. And so, and this is this is the consequence. When there's unawareness, we're fooled by the apparent reality. And Buddhists speak samsara. When there's awareness, then we incline towards actuality, which is dhamma. Buddhists speak. And so there is something we can do about it, and the skillful thing to do is to find ways of encouraging ourselves to do what we need to do. That uh, the consequences of not developing awareness are really serious. Individually, you know, we can uh, really make a mess of our lives. We have the really good fortune, all of us here, uh, and privileged upbringing and environment that we've lived in and so far and live in now. We have uh, good health and uh, we have the teachings that make good sense and so we have very good opportunity. And yes, it really doesn't take much unawareness to make a big mess of it. 
And so the wise thing to do is, whether it's in our own life or, or in observing other people, is to see that when we do act out of unawareness through body, speech or mind, or we observe the activity of unawareness on body, speech or mind, the wise and skillful thing to do is to really reflect on that, to really say, oh right, yeah, this is, here's the cause and here's the effect. Yeah. Like with greed at this time of year, it's very easy to get greedy. Yeah. Chocolate-covered marzipan <laughs> comes into the monastery in vast quantities, which I think is a great idea. However, if you're greedy, you can really create a problem out of it. Now, chocolate-covered marzipan is you know, a relatively small problem. There are a lot bigger problems uh, that can be created at this time of the year through greed. Now, we don't want to just say, oh, well, you know, we'll get, you know, we'll recover from the hangover soon and, and, uh, you know, forget about it. The thing is that if we do get greedy and we have a hangover and we feel bad, uh, the, uh, the wise and skillful thing to do is to reflect on that. So here's the cause. No, it's not because I'm a bad person that I eat too much or drink too much or chop down trees or, import rabbits or whatever, you know, we do that, that makes a mess of our lives. It's not because we're bad people. You know, that's, that's a simplistic solution, simplistic response. You know. But rather it's unawareness. You know. It's because it's unawareness. And if we appreciate this, well, then also there can be a compassionate attitude you know, towards ourselves. Like when we, are, when we act out of unawareness and we do things that are, um, you know, lead to our suffering, the suffering of others. Like you see, if somebody's asleep, you don't condemn them. Condemning is also done out of unawareness. You know, we think that, that like in our meditation, where, or maybe our non-meditation, maybe we're not meditating as much as we think we should be. You know, over the Christmas, New Year period, we, you know, our routine slips, and then we find that we're not sitting meditation or not keeping to our routine or we let our diet go or whatever and then we start feeling guilty and then we get off on condemning ourselves. Well, the wise and skillful thing to do out of a place of awareness is to reflect on that and to really look at it and see does condemning help? When I condemn myself for having just acted out of heedlessness, out of unawareness, if I condemn myself, does that help? And to really ask these questions, and this is, it's so, it's so important and, and so emphasized in the Buddha's teachings, we use the word yonisomanasikara, we've talked about this often before, wisely reflecting. It's through wise reflection. He was talking to his son Rahula, the Buddha was talking to his son Rahula, and asked him the question. He says, Rahula, lad, tell me, what is the point of a mirror? What's a mirror for? And Rahula replies, saying, a mirror is for seeing your face in. And then the Buddha replied, he said, so I say, yoni so manasikara is for seeing your mind. He didn't say, jhana is for seeing your mind. Or he didn't say, going on a vipassana retreat is for seeing your mind. Now, of course, on many occasions he did speak about the valuable place of jhana. He did talk about practicing meditation. But 
what I'm suggesting here is that if we just latch on to you know, a technique or an opinion, he didn't say that you know keeping the five precepts is going to do it. You know, you can like sometimes just think being good is going to solve all our suffering. And no, he said, Yoni so manasikaris for seeing the mind. That wisely reflect we need to learn how to use our minds, heighten awareness, uh, amplify awareness, exercise awareness, so that we can learn from our not so we don't ever make any mistakes, but so we can learn from our mistakes. So we don't keep following our aggressive behavior with more aggressive behavior. Like, maybe you're overweight. I'm a bit overweight. The doctor tells me I'm pre-obese, which I think is ridiculous. I think I'm just just a good size for this climate. But um, <laughs> um, maybe, maybe, you're over, maybe you're overweight, okay. And the reason for being overweight is for eating uh, the wrong kind of foods too much too often out of greed. And so if we don't see the root cause, the root cause is actually unawareness, not seeing the cause and effect, not seeing that if we do this, then that'll be the result. Not seeing that, we do that way, and then we have this result. Now, that result is the right result. There's nothing wrong with being overweight. That's exactly what, how it should be, according to reality, because there was a cause. Yeah. So from a place of awareness, what we do is, is we... Look at the cause, and then we, we then we give rise to the the wish to remove the cause, which is the greed. Yeah. Now, if we don't, and we just act out of unawareness, then we judge ourselves and we just say, "I'm no good. I'm hopeless. I've failed again, and this is terrible." And and we get upset with ourselves and and condemn ourselves, and then we go on a, 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 on, a, on a on some sort of a program, and and then we get greedy about the program get obsessed with the program of trying to fix ourselves and, and trying desperately in a greedy way to fix ourselves up. So we follow our greed with more greed, or we follow our aversion with more aversion, or we follow our delusion with more delusion. That's what we do uh, when there isn't awareness. And to some degree, varying degrees, all of us do this. So again, this is not to, to blame anybody, or including ourselves but rather to reflect in a way that effectively encourages us to cultivate awareness, to see that if we don't cultivate awareness, then this is what happens. And it's not just because you know, of our thinking, but it's, it's deeper than that. It's like the passions, the passions fueled by greed, aversion, and delusion are really powerful. This is why why uh, New Year's resolutions often don't work, because they're coming from uh, idealism. We have a good idea about how we should be, or maybe we have a good image of how we should be. Maybe you know we see ourselves. We have this image of how I should be: this nice, trim, well-behaved, well-spoken individual. And so then we say, I'm going to do such and such and such and such to become how I think I should be. But that's a, often that's just coming from a place of thinking. Whereas if we can 
exercise the practice of enhancing awareness in body, speech and mind and reflect on cause and effect, then what we give rise to is a is a feeling in our in our in our guts, in our bones, a deeper feeling of I really want I really want to be more mindful. I really want to be more present. At the moment when I'm about to eat something that I shouldn't eat or drink something when I'm I'm going driving or say something that is hurtful or unhelpful or or whatever our habits of heedlessness are, at the moment, I really want to be more present there. And if we have that motivation, then we'll do what we need to do. And often what we need to do is uh, more skillful preparation. So with some of these uh, really unhelpful habits that we have that uh, humiliate us and and undermine our sense of well-being, uh, it's not a lack of uh, good ideas or creative fantasies about how we could improve our lives, but it's the lack of of force. I mean, a force in the right sense, the force of motivation, the power of of motivation, the depth of motivation. That if we inquire into what's really going on, then we give level to we give rise to a level of desire that is different from the superficial. Uh, desire of just superficially wanting to change it's coming from the heart or coming from our guts and we're willing to do what we need to do like for instance preparing ourselves so we, we run over it this this uh, this thing so every time I get to see such and such a person at that cafe I just can't help but have a cigarette or even I really want to stop smoking or stop drinking or whatever it is. I just can't do it. So, so do I really want to? Do I really want to do that? Say, so, no, actually I don't. Yes, I do. No, I don't. Yes, I do. Aha. Very good. That's the issue. That's the, there's a dilemma there. There's a dilemma. One part of me wants to smoke or drink or say things or do whatever I do that gets me into trouble. And one part of me doesn't. And both of them are actually true. Now, if we prepare ourselves, we don't wait till we get into that difficult situation. If we prepare ourselves, sitting in our own space, quietly, nobody distracting us, no television on, no radio on, and we're running through this. We can run through this and say, when this happens, that happens, and that happens. And I get caught in this dilemma. And we respect the dilemma. We don't dismiss the dilemma and just try, I've got to try harder and be right. No. So there's a dilemma. And we can be mindful of the dilemma. We can even welcome the dilemma. Now, it sounds like a strange thing to say, because if you have a painful dilemma that you get sucked into from time to time, it can be really painful and really undermining. But if we look into it more carefully, you can see that dilemmas actually have got a power in them. A dilemma is something that I, ego, me, can't handle. But awareness can handle it. You know, it's awareness that's talking about it. It's awareness that's thinking about it. It's awareness that knows there is a dilemma. It's the awareness that says, I want to have a cigarette and I don't want to have a cigarette. Or, 
or I want to do this and I don't want to do this. Both of these things. Awareness knows both of these things. Awareness has the capacity, the ability to know the dilemma. And so if we focus on this, we make a practice of this, then even some of these things that can be really tricky and really undermining can be an object of reflection. And so the tension that comes between these apparently conflicting aspects of ourselves, that tension that creates an energy which can be very productive in practice because that's what grinds me down, me, I that can't handle it. Awareness hasn't got a problem with it. Awareness doesn't have a problem with anything. It's me who has the problem with things. That's why I go for refuge to awareness. That's why I go for refuge to the Buddha. If I go for refuge to me in my way, well, then, of course, there's problems, because I am definitely inherently limited. That's what the ego is, a limited condition structure. There's nothing wrong with it. It's just that's its nature. The problem is when we actually grasp it and become it and, and think that's who and what we are. So, And we do that for a long time. And so we end up feeling limited and struggling with life and all the situations that we get confronted with. And then we don't think we've got enough energy to deal with these things. We haven't got enough wisdom or whatever. And we keep going off looking for wisdom, looking for energy, looking for teachings, looking for compassion or whatever it is that we think we're lacking. Whereas if we, if we, if we identify the dilemma and learn to respect the dilemma and learn to appreciate and understand the nature of dilemma, see how these conflicting aspects of ourselves can generate like a dynamo an energy and that this energy is very functional in practice. If we have that, well, then we don't have to shy away from these situations. Yes, they can feel like hell at times. They can be very difficult. But if we are coming from a place of awareness, not just reactivity, from a place of awareness, well, then we can identify these things and prepare ourselves in advance, and then there's a chance that we won't get sucked into them, won't get pulled into fighting with ourselves, or maybe fighting with things outside of ourselves. So uh, the uh, the drought in Australia is, um, yeah, it's a, it's a sad thing that's happening. There's a lot of sad things that are happening around the planet. But when we see these sad things that are happening around the planet, you know, just feeling sad is not the only option. We can also look in and say, well, where, where's the cause for this? And see, we don't have to blame anybody. We don't have to blame... George Bush for the war in Iraq. We don't have to blame anybody for these things. What we can do is identify unawareness and see, well, here's, here's a primary cause. And what can we do about it? We can cultivate awareness. And when there's awareness, then there's a whole new level of discernment and sensitivity becomes available to us. So thank you very much this evening for your attention. Om Namah Namah